welcome. This is Man Up, the men's mental podcast. Men, <laughs> it is quite, it is quite a mental podcast. Well, you just, believe... you just set the tone, haven't you? That really was great. It is mental. We're you just changed up, yeah. hello. This yeah. is the mental podcast. This is the uh, mental health podcast. Men's the mental, men's mental, mental health, health podcast. podcast. Should I do the intro? You do it this time. Yeah, like you're struggling today. I was all, I was all excited. <laughs> okay, go for it. So, Tommy, okay, imagine you didn't hear that first bit. Okay, ignore, put that out of your mind, everyone. Put that first bit out of your mind. Okay, and all of a sudden you press play. Hello and welcome to Man Up, the men's mental health podcast. I am Tommy and I'm sitting here with the splendiferous Andy Richardson. How are you? I feel like I've just been put out of a job. That's <laughs> the so one thing. That was not bad, was it? That it was, was quite it good. It was great. The one that's thing. The first, that's the first time you've ever let me do that, I think. Oh, do you feel like a bit? Like I feel, do you like, feel like you should, we should we should swap it. No, that was too much for me. I feel like I'm way that was way above my pay grade. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, but you, well, what you didn't mention was we are talking from LCCM. I was getting to that bit. Okay, go on, go on. Hello, and uh, once again, we'd like to thank the LCCM for having us. That is the London College of Creative Media. Oh, Oh back of the net, back of the it's net. It's almost like I've heard that before. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and they've been very generous in letting us use their uh, their their rooms right in the heart of central London, so we can give our guests the quality podcast experience that we have. have um, yes, absolutely. Yes, indeed, indeed. So um, now we promise that we won't keep banging on about the mental wealth festival because we have for the last couple of few podcasts, but. I'm afraid to say we are going to have to bang on about it just once more. And um, for good reason, I'd yeah. say. Because this week, uh, as we mentioned, Tommy was at, talking at the festival. We had um, some marvellous panels. We had the No Man is an Island panel, which was a men's mental health podcast. But before that, uh, we, we, we thought, oh, there's another one on. We'll arrive early. Yeah. And so we caught a, uh, a BAME mental health podcast panel BAME stands for <laughs> here it goes <laughs> all right black asian minority ethnicity yes yes four marks in your face <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it used to be used to be bme uh used to be bme but just black and minority and, and ethnicity the but, world is evolving but i think the asians felt felt a little bit left out yeah. so they put the a in so there it's BAME. Go. Because the world does need another acronym, doesn't it? Always. There's always time for an acronym. <laughs> always. But anyway, we the, the, the panel was uh, quite amazing. It was uh, They were talking about all different um, perspectives and they sh shared some great stories. Uh, but there was, apart from them all being from black, Asian and mon minority ethnicities, there was a man on the panel. Boom, 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 so we thought to ourselves, wow, this man will be perfect to, to come along and, uh, and talk to us. And uh, he had an amazing story to tell, which we're going yeah. to share with you today. That man is Anthony Davis. He is. He is. And he's, he's actually, which is another, he ticks so many boxes, he's actually a psychotherapist. So he might be, give you lovely listeners a little bit of advice as well to help you along your way. Yeah. You never know. You might be like. So anyway, another another ginormous, humongous introduction again, uh, yeah. where we've witted on for rightfully ages. So yes, and rightfully Indeed. so. So um, yes. Yeah, so why don't we? Why don't we introduce him? This uh, Anthony. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me 
on your podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Um, and uh, yeah, we are really excited about it because I remember we sat there and we, uh, I think you were second to speak and you you sort of gave your story. And I remember when you were talking, we were both sort of captivated. And then when you sort of finished, I remember I, at one point I looked over at Andy because we were sitting on different rows, weren't we? And I looked at you and we sort of like nodded at each other like, Yep. Yeah, we need this guy to come on because your story was fantastic. Yeah. Talk, well, okay. So, talking of which, let's 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 hear a little bit about. But let's talk about your background first of all. So, I, I don't know if you heard, listeners. He's not from these shores. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm I'm American. Um, I've been in the UK for nine years, and um, I have a British citizenship. So, I have dual citizenship, which is great. And I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So. If you don't know, it's near New York. <laughs> I usually say that just to give people perspective about where Philadelphia is. But I, yeah, grew up, born there, grew up there, and came to UK when I was 25. Excellent. Yeah, now, of course, we've heard of Philly. Rocky, Fresh Absolutely. Prince. I was born in Philly. Uh, well, born, yeah. yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, we've heard You're of right. Philadelphia. Maybe there are probably some people that haven't, but they've <laughs> been living under a rock there all their lives. Anyway, so so you were born in Philly. You came over. You came over here. So let's talk, let's talk about your upbringing um, in in Philly. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So in Philly, um, I was born in an area called um, Germantown. So Philadelphia is broken into different sections, similar to London. Um, and the way it works in Philadelphia is that there's there's circular areas for where um, different ethnicities live. And I want to start there because it's quite crucial to my story. So in the center of Philadelphia, center city, there's um, university students and mainly like young um, white professionals. And then on the outside, it's like a ring type of section, there's the minorities, mainly African-American. So there are various sections. So there's Germantown, North Philadelphia, Mount Airy, and I grew up on the border of Germantown and Mount Airy. So I grew up pr primarily around African-Americans. And growing up in that area, it's, um, you, there's, there's certain ways of being black. So you, as a black man, you um, had to talk a certain type of way, dress a certain type of way, act a certain type of way in order to belong in this society. And I remember when I was very young, I just did not fit in with how they should be. I didn't like to wear baggy clothes. I used to tuck in everything in my pants. I wore glasses from the age of seven, and I was essentially tormented. <laughs> very, very young. Um, I remember um, I, when I started wearing glasses at seven, I was bullied relentlessly, and it was probably my first experience of feeling like the other, even though I was black and living in a primarily black community, I still felt like an outsider. And I was going to a public school and public schools in the States and not like in the UK, <laughs> nowhere near. And especially in this area where there's a, there's a lack of funding and a lack of teachers. So classes are overcrowded. Students are just crammed into these rooms. They're not getting an education and they come from very impoverished backgrounds as well. So if they see someone that they don't understand why they're acting that way, they automatically target them. And I was unfortunately the one that they targeted. I was tormented in that public school and my mom said, nope, not having this, we're gonna take you out. <laughs> so I uh, went to Catholic school, which was pretty much the best decision that 
my parents really made for me in terms of my education. However, when I went to Catholic school, it was a primarily African-American school as well. Great. I was in a Catholic um, environment. It was very comfortable. They had morals. It was um, ethical code. However, I went there from the age of eight. At 10 years old, the bullying started again. And that's because I didn't fit in with these stereotypes around how black men should act. And for the first time, I was called white boy. And I said, wait a second, I'm I'm black. What do you mean white boy? And he said, oh, well, you talk like a white boy. You walk like a white boy. You, you're intelligent. You're white. And I said, no, I'm, I'm still black. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being myself. And I just did not understand why. I just felt like, why are they calling me this? And then my sexuality was questioned because I didn't, I wasn't really good at sports. And I just felt, again, like the other. And that's probably the first time I did not want to go to school. I just felt really low. I stayed in my room. And my parents just could not really understand what was going on because I didn't want to tell them that these kids are calling me white boy because I have two very strong African-American, well, my, dad, my father's African-American, my mother's from the Caribbean, two strong, hardworking black parents that raised me well. I didn't want them to think they were raising a white boy, a boy that didn't fit in. And it was embarrassing. I felt a lot of shame. And I just didn't know how to manage it. So my mom started noticing that I was getting sick a lot and not going to school. And she said, what's going on? I said, "These, the, all the boys in my class are bullying me. And I don't know what to do. She said, well, do you want me to go to the principal and talk to them? I said, no, 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 don't do that. It's going to make it worse. <laughs> if you go to the principal, it's going to perpetuate the fact that I'm not actually acting like a black man. So I said, no, it's fine. I'll stick it out. Um, one year goes by, the bullying continues, and my mood continues to get worse. And that's when my mother said, no, we're going to try to put a stop to this. And it was also at that point that I decided to fight one of the boys that was kind of leading this bullying. And when my parents saw that I was getting aggressive, they said, no, we're going to step in. We don't care what you say. We're going to put a stop to this. So my mom went to the principal, talked to them. Um, we had a history of how I was being bullied. The teacher saw it as well. And his boy was expelled. So that was around the age of 13. And after that, because he was kind of leading this bullying pact, I started to feel more comfortable. Things got a lot better. Then I eventually went to high school. And I, went to, I still went to Catholic school, but I went to a very diverse Catholic school. And I was accepted for who I was. Um, I was around various ethnic minorities. I was in, in that school in particular, it wasn't the typical type of high school. Whereas if you're popular, you're not intelligent. If you're intelligent, you're popular. So I was kind of amongst the popular kids because I was in the honors and advanced placement courses. So it was to my benefit. Um, but that was probably the first point where I really started to feel, at that time I didn't know how to categorize it, but I didn't feel that I belonged and I felt like the other and I felt quite low. Um, also around that time when I was 13, I started to get into theater as well. And that really helped to, um, to find a place where I belong as well. And it helped me to really build my confidence. And my first play was actually the Nutcracker. And I kind of stole the role from somebody else. So I, I played the grandfather in the Nutcracker. And I was really into um, like music and art and stuff like that. And the music teacher was also the theater director and also the and also um, like part headed arts department. It was a really small school. And the guy playing the grandfather was 
was ill that day, so she asked me to step in. And I stepped in and I did phenomenal. And she was like, I want you to be the grandfather in a nutcracker. And I was like, sweet. That's awesome. <laughs> so I did it. And it was the best experience of my life. And I never would have thought coming from a place of being so um, so downtrodden about myself and not understanding who I was, finding a place on the stage in front of hundreds of people, acting as a character, I would feel comfortable. But I really did. It was incredibly cathartic. So having that experience as well of getting into theater was another way of really enhancing my mental state. So I did theater throughout high school um, and also did it in university. But during high school, again, I had another <laughs> transition of myself in that I, when I was 16, I started to question my sexuality. Up until that time, I never really thought about my sexuality. I just assumed that I was straight because that's what every boy was in my school. It was just kind of a heteronormative environment. You're not anything other than that. And if you are, then you have to immediately think why and then go back to being straight. So at 16, I realized that I was attracted to men. And I said, wait a second, what's what's going on here? Um, you know, Catholic. I was really involved in the church. I go to Catholic school. Both my parents are straight. I don't know anyone else that's gay. Where is this coming from? And in my mind, I thought that it was something you had to learn or something that you that was put upon you. So I was thinking, well, can I unlearn this? Can it something I can take to get rid of it? I just didn't understand why I felt this way. It was so confusing to me. And I actually, one of my best friends from when I was younger, he came out to me in that same year as being bisexual. And I was talking to him a lot about it. And I said, I don't understand why I feel this way. I don't understand why I like men. Why am I attracted to men? And he said, you're, you're probably gay. And I'm like, what? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gay. Come on. That's, you know, that's for white people. Because it doesn't, it's not in the black, you don't see gay people in the black community when I was growing. It just don't see it. And the ones that you do see don't live in Philadelphia. They live in LA. I remember around that time, um, RuPaul, of course, everyone knows RuPaul. She had a, um, a really famous talk show. And I remember watching it. And I was just like, oh my God, as a black man dressed as a woman, um, very charismatic, very entertaining. And my mom called me and said, don't watch that show and turned it off. <laughs> So it was just those types of experiences that just made me question, okay, something's not right. So I talked to my priest about it, and he said, well, um, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you love yourself and you love God, it's perfectly fine. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to just sit on this, park it for a bit, and, and see what happens. So from 16 to 17, I started to really think about this and think about what my priest said. And I started to accept that I'm not straight. I didn't say I was gay, but I knew I wasn't completely straight. So then at 18, I go to university and the feelings grow, the attraction grows. I start to talk to men. And, but however, the first year of university, I never came out as being gay. I always said, I like men, I'm probably bi. Um, and I told my friends that, and they were perfectly fine. The university I went to was incredibly liberal, by the way. It was in New England. I mean, there were people, I mean, being straight was just not the norm. So I felt in good company, but something in me still did not want to say I was gay. Even though I knew it, I didn't want to actually verbalize it because that would make it true. And after my first year of university, I came out to Philadelphia for the summer, and I was um, 
talking to a guy and um, I was texting him. We just started getting mobile phones. So it was really amazing. And um, I was texting him and my sister found my phone and she told my mom, I didn't know this. And the next day I was working at a, a law firm during the summer as a record clerk. And I was getting ready to leave. And my mom said, Anthony, who's Mark? I was like, what? <laughs> Mark? Oh, um, yeah, he's a friend. And by the way, I'm bisexual. Bye. And I ran out the door. <laughs> so I guess that was me coming out to my parents. So um, yeah, that kind of spiraled a bit. And then that evening, I came home from work. And of course, my mom told my dad right after. I came home and my dad said, um, so what is this that you're bisexual? I don't understand what's going on. You need to make a choice. I had to make a choice. And I said, choice? I'm, I've already chosen. In my mind, of course, I didn't say it to him. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll make a choice. I'll make a choice. And I kind of left it at that, parked it for another year. Um, came out to my friends when I went back to university, my second year of uni as being gay, because I, I knew I was, I just had to verbalize it. And then from there, it was like literally, once I verbalized it, it was, it was almost like this boulder was lifted off my shoulders. I felt that I really found my authentic self because I came out to myself, but actually verbalizing and being and owning it and being proud of it was just something that was, it was, you can't really describe how it feels. And my friends were just so accepting of it. And they were like, oh, we're going to go to gay bars. We're going to talk to guys. You didn't meet this guy. It was just so amazing. And I, I do understand that experience is not the norm. <laughs> and I, I do feel privileged to have that coming out experience. Um, but it was just really amazing to have that with really good friends. So my second university was fabulous. I was out and proud. I went to LGBT organizations and started dating men. And then I had to go back home that summer <laughs> after having this amazing liberal experience my second year of university. And I went back home and I told my mom, I said, mom, I've made a choice. I'm gay. She said, what? <laughs> that's your choice? I said, well, it's not really a choice. I'm just saying choice because that's what you told me I had to do. Mm -hmm. But I'm gay and I'm out to my friends. And she said, well, don't tell your father. <laughs> I said, okay, but... He's going to find out eventually. I have to tell him. He said, no, don't tell your father. Wait till he comes to you. Okay. So that whole summer, didn't say anything to him. And went back to university for my, um, my third year. And still didn't say anything to him. And then my last year after I graduated, I was going back to Philadelphia for graduate school in, in clinical social work. Um, I studied psychology in undergrad. And um, when I went back to... Philly that summer, I said, I have to tell my dad, I'm going to be here for another two years. I'm going to be dating men. Maybe it gets serious. I'm going to want to introduce him to my parents. It's, it has to happen. So I said, mom, I'm going to tell dad. She said, no, don't tell him. I said, mom, I'm going to tell dad. <laughs> I have to tell him. I, I, I just have to tell him. So I um, sat him down and I said, dad, I've made a choice. I'm gay. And he said, what do you mean you're gay? I said, I, I've, you told me to make a choice. I've made a choice and I'm gay. I'm, I've accepted that. And all my friends know, and I'm dating a guy. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, fine. He gets up and walks away. I'm like, oh no, this isn't good. And my dad is, he's, I love him to death, but he's not the most emotionally expressive. He's a very like, Strong African-American man, hardworking, provides for his family, heteronormative, that's my father. 
And I've never seen him not say anything. And that terrified me. So my mom said, you should probably leave. I think you should go. So I left the house that evening when I saw my boyfriend at the time. And um, I came back the next day. And my mom said, your father's still quite upset. And in my house over the fireplace, I used to run track and field um, for six years. And I had medals from uh, all of my, my races. And all the medals were gone. And I said, Mom, what happened to my medals? And my, dad, and my mom said, um, your dad took them down because he said, I'm not going to have a son that's gay. And I said, ah, OK. OK. So I went to work and still didn't talk to my dad after that. And then this was on, I'm trying to remember the days. It was on a Thursday, came back on a Friday. And Saturday, um, my dad gets up early in the morning, comes to my room and says, let's go for a drive. And I say, okay, what's going to happen? We're going for a drive. So we're in the car and we're driving around. And he says, I thought about it a lot. I don't completely understand what this means, but you're my son and I love you. And I'll do my best to understand where you're coming from. And I literally burst into tears. I just, it was just completely overwhelming to have my dad say this to me. And then from there on, he's been one of my biggest advocates. And my mom has, has been coming around as well, but they're both, they're both pretty awesome parents. And so my coming out story is, while a little rocky and took a while, was, um, was one of the, the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, and since then, I've, um, as I've been working as a clinical social worker and a psychotherapist, I've been working with people to help them find their true selves um, to help them understand that being authentic is not a choice. It's something that you have to do. Um, and be it finding their purpose in life, being discovering their sexual orientation, be it having fulfilling relationships. As long as you're true to yourself, that's the most important thing. And that's the crux of the work I do um, as a therapist. And yeah, so that's pretty much my story. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God, what a story. Whoa. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start after that. That is, that is amazing. Um, well, should, should we take it back? to um, First of all, I mean, in the beginning, kudos to your parents for mm. protecting you when you were younger and seeing that you were unhappy and that things mm. were going wrong. Um, you mentioned a few things and, you know, they, they resonated. You couldn't, you know, you, you didn't want to let your parents know because you were a strong black man. You know, because that's what we had to do. That's what you had to do. Um, as black men, why why do we still have this or this persona that we have to be strong? That's, you know, you said your parents are strong African-American. And so, you know, is this something that we're doing to, is it poisoning our black men? Um, I don't want to say it's poisoning. I think it's it's part of a... Um, socialized gender norm among all men, mm. but quite strongly among black men, that this hyper-masculine persona of not expressing emotion, of being straight in order to have a family, reproduce and contribute to society, mm. I feel that's what's been perpetuating this and what's quite still quite strong in, in the African-American community and in the black community in the UK. Um, I think it, it's generational. 
it stems back, unfortunately, to colonization and slavery, whereas men were literally forced to reproduce and to provide children in order to work on plantations and to work in um, homes and things like that. And there, the co colonialist idea that being non-straight because of Christian views in, a, in a, a really negative way has also influenced this idea that being gay is wrong and it's not being a man to have feelings for other men. And I, I have to say it is changing significantly from when I first came out at 16. It's, it's, it's literally um, ge uh, gender and sexuality are just on a spectrum. So it's not gay, straight, yeah. bi. But I think in the black community, there's still this stigma and fear of the unknown. I feel that um, some really negative Christian views around sexuality are driving this. I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm still Catholic and I go to church almost every Sunday, but I've been able to um, inf intervene in the religion and involve myself in a religion that is in, in a positive way, in a spiritual way. I look at the Bible and Christian practice as something that is beneficial for society because that is the crux of what the religion and the practice entails. And I'm more so spiritual. I do believe in a higher power. I believe that there is something driving all of this. <laughs> and by having that belief and that hope, it really gives me meaning and purpose. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that everyone has had that experience that has come out because um, and they have been discriminated in the church and I'm just saying based on my experience I found that by looking at the positive elements of Christianity looking at the positive elements of community looking at the positive elements of spirituality and how it's meant to bring people together not seg segregate people and discriminate that's how I've been able to come to grips with my religion um, but Unfortunately, in some black communities, they're using religion as a tool to actually discriminate against the other non-heteronormative, non-hypermasculine person. And I think that's one of the driving forces into making black men think I shouldn't be anything but straight. So what um so you've got experience of different communities in the in the US and here. Mm. Uh couple of questions really what 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 do you see the difference between the sort of prejudice preju prejudices they have in the u.s to, to here and what what would what's your view on that and also uh, your work as a as a psychotherapist what what are the sort of patterns that you're seeing what are the problems you know the main problems you're seeing in, in, over here basically yeah so in the states there's what well, here as well there's institutional racism um quite rigid stereotypes around gender role norms, um, sexuality norms. But I find that here, as opposed to the States, there's not this, um, there's not this emphasis on discussing ethnicity. In the States, it's, it's, it's discussed all the time. Um, it's in your face, it's evident everything we do, it's joked upon, it's discriminated against, but is still discussed. And I feel that here, that ethnicity is almost taboo to, to talk about, that everyone is the same. And I think that by not discussing it, by not making it something that's clearly evident that 
I'm black, you're white. <laughs> that's where we that's where we kind of don't acknowledge difference and want to understand it and accept it. And I think that and sometimes in the black community here, by not talking about it and and by white people here not talking about it, or not black people not talking about it, it's still something that is unspoken and it makes it something that is that's still the other when it should be integrated into society. So I feel that that's a, a significant difference that I've seen. Um, it's funny because on that panel, I can't remember the Baroness's name. She said, yeah. she said, but oh, people will say, I don't see color. Exactly. Yeah. I remember yeah. that very yeah. clearly. Which I, I, I only really heard that here when I moved to the UK. And I, and I said, wait a second. I'm, of course you do. It's, yeah. the, the, it depends on how you, um, yes, you see color, but do you stereotype and prejudice against it? Do you have stark views around a black person when you see them? And that's, that's where it, that's where the line is drawn. So I think for someone to to say I don't see color is completely false, <laughs> and it's it's not a way of avoiding offending a person of color by saying I don't see color. It's actually making them feel that they don't belong in that environment and that they're being ostracized. Because how can you not sit across from me and see not see them a black person? So I think that by discussing it more and more and making it something that you want to learn more about and something that you want to understand and, and culturally appreciate what needs, is something needs to happen more in the UK. I mean, this is a mental health podcast. So, I mean, let's talk about the, um, the effects that you see of this, you know, people not talking about things and the, you know, this other, other sounds like, to me, it sounds like there's a lot of othering going on. When you were younger, it was like, Oh, you're the white boy, you know, which is, is meant. I can't, still trying to get my head around that, you know, because you're intelligent, or like, you know, or because you're, you know. Well, I mean, that, you're, you're that kind of stems from ingrained stereotypes in the black community that yeah. if you act a certain type of way, that's not the stereotypical black way, then you're yeah. not black, right? Yeah. And that's why, because they they notice and they see in, in media and in communities that they attribute whiteness with acting intelligent because they see yeah. a lot of white people that are going to good universities yeah, and getting good yeah, jobs. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they automatically feel that because I'm black, I can't attain that. Yeah. It's almost like a, like crabs in a bucket that if I, I can't do it, then you can't. So I'm going to pull you back down. And yeah. that's how I felt. And I said, no, I'm going to be the crab that gets out yeah, yeah. <laughs> and gets an education yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, gets the good job and moves abroad and travels the world. I refuse. Yeah. And if that's the difference in the black community, African American African American community I've seen in the States is that there's this this need to um not want to strive for excellence. And that were that's that really bothers me because that's definitely a generational um almost source of trauma where you don't feel that you're worthy of actually getting that and attaining that. And again, not every black person thinks this way, but I think that's one of the significant differences that I've seen in the States and here is that there's this mentality that if you are acting not stereotypically black, then you are, they call it selling out or acting white. And that's something that I've been passionate about not endorsing for myself because I'm just being myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm being white or black. I'm just being Anthony Davis. <laughs> so I think that if more people embody that I'm just being myself and not just being a certain type of way, then they can actually find more authenticity and be true to themselves. Yeah, and so and so, yeah. Like like, like I, I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, what the the result of not being yourself? What have mm. you seen? Have you seen 
people with depression, anxiety? Also, what, what sort of problems are you seeing amongst the communities? Yeah, so I work with a lot of um, black and minority ethnic um, uh, men, primarily gay and queer men. And what I found within that community, particularly among a lot of Nigerian men, is that there's there's these these quite rigid gender role norms that they find conflict with. So they'll generationally see their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers acting a certain type of way, then they'll be raised and they'll not be acting in a way that's similar to that and they experience this gender role conflict. So they try to act in that hyper-masculine way. They continue to experience that internalized conflict and that is what causes anxiety primarily and also low mood. So while they're trying to struggle with this, they're isolating themselves from their families, they're isolating themselves from their friends, and then you add sexuality into the mix when they start to go, grow into their formative years and they realize that they're not straight, that just literally topples over and then it kind of leads into a period of low mood and depression. So that's the pattern I've been seeing. And, you, and unfortunately, sometimes that leads to drug use, alcohol use, and masking their sexual orientation and getting in really unhealthy relationships with women. So sometimes I've seen men who've been in relationships for years, they've had children with women and they said, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep lying to myself. I have to come out. And then once they do that, it completely disrupts the family dynamic. But then you have their partners with children who are left alone and they try to find themselves. So it's, it not only affects them, but it affects others as well, the family dynamic, and it just kind of goes on and on and down a spiral. So that's what I've seen. But I would say that young black men, especially um, young black men in the UK, really should try to just be true to themselves. The, the other thing, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming something here but i'm assuming that your um because your parents uh it's, it, you didn't have a, a sort of you didn't have a poor background you 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 were you weren't i'm not saying that you were rich but you 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 know you you ha you were you could afford they could afford to send you to a nice school and that sort of thing well i mean i i would probably say like we weren't poor but we weren't we were probably like mm, middle to lower middle class but i got scholarships <laughs> yeah my, my parents can afford a full tuition for catholic yeah. school the church paid for most of it. Right, okay. um, my mom had to work to, she um, was a daycare provider and she had her own daycare center. She had to work almost six, seven days a week. My father yeah. worked overtime and that's what paid for my education. And when I went to university and grad school, all scholarships and, and loans and grants. So again, I, it's, it's not as if you have to be a rich black person in order to succeed. You have yeah. to be a driven person. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a, a, another misconception around um, attaining excellence and, and trying to be beyond mediocre is that you don't yeah. have to have a lot of money in order to do well in society. Yeah. You have to be driven and motivated. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can totally see that. I mean, I wasn't suggesting that, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that, but but I think what a lot of the, the sort of BAME communities, they, they have the, the, there's what a lot of people don't, factor in sometimes is the is the economic factor because mm. you've only you've got the social stereotypes you know spe you you've got the fact that you're if you were a man those stereotypes you've got the 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 gay stereotypes but then you've also got the fact that you know if you come from a poor background you've got that coming against you as well you know and and so I was just wondering if you've seen any of those sort of um 
patterns, you know, the sort of, uh, yeah, not pointing to very good words here, really. <laughs> no, no, but, no yeah, yeah. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, um, social economic status does play a significant factor. And that's what I mean, it does play a factor. Thank God you hear Thank God. You were struggling there. That's that's the one, right? I'll remember yeah. that for next time. <laughs> oh, I'm not completely you know, oblivious to the fact that yeah. does play a factor and you know, getting good education and getting a good job. Um, but at the same time, it's individual success. So I'm not saying that, using myself as an example, everyone should go to Catholic school and then go to university and grad school. That was my path. But I think developing your own path towards meaning and purpose and self-excellence is important. So if you come from a very poor background and you want to go to university, then would it not be a case of figuring out, can you get a scholarship? Can you um, look at alternative ways of getting education? Do you want to work and then maybe go to university in order to save money? It doesn't have to be a traditional way of attaining that. And what I've found is that there's a very rigid pathway that people um, personify for themselves that say, if I'm not doing this and I can't attain that end all. So I want them to broaden that scope and say, it doesn't have to be that pathway. It could be something else. So something else, as long as you're trying to achieve the goal that you want to achieve, it doesn't matter how you do it, as long as you do it. And that empowerment is what's quite key. So I think, yes, you can come from an incredibly poor background, but if you're not empowered to actually achieve your goals, there's no point. Yeah. I mean, but if you're, if the only thing you're worried about is, uh, you know, where the next meal is coming from. If, mm. Like, you know, it's hard to get empowered to sort of go on the next thing. So, yeah, I mean, I totally, yeah. I, I think totally it's, a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. So you, yes, you have, you're worried about your well-being and getting food and clothing and things like that. But it has to get to a certain point where you're thinking, okay, am I just surviving or am I trying to live? And if I'm surviving, is there any way to actually enhance that level of survival? So... If you're, if you haven't gotten education and you're not able to get a good job, is there any way you can get support to get there? And as a social worker, that's what I usually try to support people with is that, yes, you come from a very low economic background. You're living in council property. You don't have a job now. Let's go to the job center and see if we can try to find you something. They have groups. They have courses. And I think it's just, again, it's empowering them to reach out to the levels of support. One thing I have to say is that in the UK, Y'all have a lot of support. <laughs> Y'all, everyone here is, I don't think you fully understand how much government and mental health support is actually available compared to the states. In the states, we don't have a similar social care system as you as you have here. It's just, it doesn't exist. Well, it's, and you have to pay for it as well. Yeah, healthcare there is completely privatized where you have the NHS. So I, I mean, coming from that, environment of coming here i just it just really baffles my mind how it's literally at your doorstep <laughs> you just have to be empowered and driven to actually want to take it take That's advantage actually of it really nice to hear because we quite often hear people bashing NHS oh yeah and this i'm and not that. saying so it's, it's, it's amazing nice. but <laughs> no but I, i'd never bash the nhs no, i mean but you know yeah. we we often talk badly about funding but it's actually quite nice and refreshing oh, to yeah. hear somebody actually seen outsiders point of view of the sense we've come to england and Actually, there is a lot of support out there. Oh, completely. And and again, I'm speaking from working within social services in the NHS, but those that want to get support get it. And my role is to help you to realize that it is available. Um, so yeah, I think it's just exposing people to the plethora of resources that are available in the community and encouraging them to actually want to get out of the situation they're in. 
and helping them to see that there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are goals that you can achieve. It's going to take you a little bit longer than the rich white person that went to a really privileged school, but you can eventually get there. Um, and I think it's just encouraging them to actually take that path. Mate, you're bloody good. Wait, why did you become a therapist? What, what, was, the, what was the motivation behind it? I, so I, it started when um, I started helping people when I was um, in the church. So I used to do a lot of community service. Um, I was an altar server as well. I did um, like bake sales and car washes. And, yeah. and then I really started working. Um, I went to work with children, actually. Um, my mother, um, she had a daycare, as I said before. And I would work with her during the summers. And she worked with a lot of children that um, had uh, learning difficulties and behavioral difficulties. And I used to work one-to-one with them, like doing coloring and alphabet and things like that. And I said, oh, this is really cool. And then I had a lot of friends that would just talk to me about things. And I would just like sit there and listen, give advice. And they said, you're a really good listener. You should try to do this for a living. And I said, oh, okay. I mean, originally I wanted to be a lawyer. My goal was to go to Harvard, be a lawyer, make loads of money. But I did, <laughs> the only way to make a lot of money as a lawyer is to be a prosecutor. And I didn't. I couldn't lie. Um, and then I thought about being a doctor, but I hate blood. So I was thinking, okay, what else can I do? And I said, well, what about psychology? So I studied psychology. And I, I, I think for me, being a very shy, introverted person, I always observe human behavior. And that always interested me, not like in a stalkerish type of way, but in a way that just I observe people and I get a sense of body language and eye contact. And I, I have a very implicit um, I form an implicit connection with people first before I even say anything to them. And psychology helped me to really understand how to bring that all together and theories behind it. And, and I said, oh, this is really fascinating stuff. And it helps me to really not only understand others, but helps me understand myself. So in studying psychology, it was almost like my own little form of therapy because I was reading about depression and anxiety and I said wait a second I had that when I was younger that makes sense to me now so it was it was almost therapeutic and I said I want to be able to use this knowledge to help other people so when I finished my degree I was debating between doing a doctorate in psychology and then I realized social work was more in line with being being one in the community and doing more community-based work but also doing therapy so I said I'll be a social worker and that's how I got into that and Started working with um, children and adolescents with learning disabilities. Um, and then when I came to the UK, I worked primarily with um, adults and older adults in the community. And it just grew from there. But my goal was to always work one-to-one with people, work in the community, help others, and just really help people to live their best lives, basically. Fantastic. Fantastic. I, actually, you answered my my next question was I was going to ask you about your personal experience mm. of mental health you know anxiety and that but it's you sort of answered it because you mm. you went through that as a, as a kid when you were being mm. bullied and you know you that's when you had the real trauma and it sounds like you know you did it the hard way you did it the organic way and mm. you and you and you sort of dealt with it yeah um, methodically as the years went on you know incredibly brave thing to do to to you know turn up at your parents house and 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 do and with with all that stigma upon you, you know, to be able to be that honest with them as well, you know, but it sounds like they're pretty cool people as well. Oh yeah, they're awesome. Um, so I, I'm married at the moment. I've been married with my husband for seven years and he's Egyptian and right. my family have literally just adopted him and 
you know, it's just, they've just been so amazingly accepting and awesome. And my grandmother, she's, um, she's 84 now, but she came to our wedding two years ago. And I remember when I came out to her, I was dating someone else at the time. It was, it was years ago. Um, and I said, grandma, I'm dating a man. His name is so-and-so. She said, oh, that's nice, baby. That's really nice. <laughs> and I said, do you have any questions? She said, no, no, it's fine. I already knew. And it was just, <laughs> it was just Amazing. so awesome. Like they, it was, Amazing. yeah, it was just literally, it was just so much acceptance and love and support. And that's, I'm just really privileged to have that. To don't, don't blame age on bigotry. Oh, no, not at no. all. I mean, my grandmother's yeah. from North Carolina, Southern Baptist. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And if she can do it, then I know it's possible. Um, so, but yeah, so yeah, it's been really amazing. I've got another question. Sorry, I've got yeah, so many questions. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so um, you mentioned it's good over here and much better than the states, but um, there are flaws in the system. Mm. And I think someone like yourself, if if there were people in the sort of black community, if there were people in the gay community that knew you existed, mm. and there were more of you, then. Uh, you know, it would be so because there is still so a lot of prejudice in this country against all sorts of different groups mm. of people. I'm sitting here as a you know a white middle class middle aged man. I've probably got the you know the but you know I've I've had prejudice against me as well. Glasses, I've had the glasses thing as well. You know, specky four eyes. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, but. <laughs> So I'm just trying to get my own little thing, you know. I love I'm you, sitting, Andy. I'm sitting there. There's, I love you. there's two black men I, sitting in front of me. Like, I'm trying really? to... Really? <laughs> no, I was playing Andy, I'm, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I think it's time for revolution, Andy. Look at you. Oh, mate, the glasses. Andy's going to go on a militant one. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here talking about, you know, black mental health and I'm the, the, you know, the, the, real, the, the, yeah, the white yeah. man here. Yeah. But anyway. Everyone has their journey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... But anyway, what would you what would you like to see sort of changed over here in, in the system? Uh, would you like to see there, you know, obviously maybe yeah, more funding or what, what do we do badly over here, do you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't think that anything is done badly. I think it's done different. It can be done better. So I think in terms of psychotherapy and counseling, we talked about in the, in the panel for the Mental Wealth Festival that we need more people of color um, training to become counselors and therapists. Yeah. Um, training to um, want to work in the communities that they serve. I, I'm not saying that they don't, but I think in mental health specifically, because there's a lot of things in the third sector. So we had someone from Mind on the panel and we had um, like third sector groups forming. But I think if we're going to infiltrate the NHS, which is the non-costed first point of entry, if you're going to see your GP, we need to have more black and brown faces in those primary care surgeries in secondary mental health teams and in hospitals. Because unfortunately, what's happening that I've seen is that particularly among black men, they don't access primary care because they may have a GP that's maybe seen it for 10 minutes at the most. They present with anxiety. They may be given medication and sent along their way. They don't take it because of the stigma attached around it. And it's not exactly what they want. They want talking therapies. So they don't take the medication. Their anxiety gets worse something happens in a crisis, they're picked up by police, taken into hospital, and they're on the ward with white nurses, white psychiatrists that are seeing them as an angry black man, and they're over-medicated, and they're not giving psychotherapies, sent back into the community, 
recovery is quite sparse. The, circ- the cycle, again, continues. So that's what I've been seeing. So I think it needs to start with black and brown folks getting trained in counseling. Of course, they'll be up against the stigma around, well, therapies for white people. But I think there needs to be more of an interest and a drive to getting them into the training for counseling psychotherapies and the training to be psychiatric nurses and training to be mental health social workers and, you know, getting them into that those types of professions where they can be those faces that will offer some solace and support for those that come from backgrounds where they were, te- were telling them that mental health is wrong. You shouldn't feel this way. You know, it's, it's something that we have to keep in the family and not tell anybody else. Normalizing it is really important. Do you think amongst the, the gay community, uh, because Again, I might, maybe I'm talking in sort of cliches here, but gay, gay people are more likely to, and amongst their own community, talk about their own feelings and problems a bit more. Is, or is there, is there any stigma, mental health stigma in the gay community at all? Any? I, I don't think there's a stigma around mental health in the gay community. I think, in, I mean, we have, I have to separate it from the BAM gay community and the white gay community. Yeah. I have to make that very clear because there's, there's significant differences between both. Being a part of the BAM gay community, we're not completely accepted into the white gay community. That's just what I've seen. Um, most of the services for um, LGBT plus are geared towards white people. A lot, there are a lot of groups, but they're mainly white people. And I think there needs to be, again, back to what I was saying before about training counselors and therapists yeah. and those that want to be in mental health professions to actually run these types of groups for the BAM LGBT plus community. Um, I've seen lots of podcasts and we had the um, uh, Camilla who's on um, uh, L- the, the lesbian um, woman yeah. of color. She's organizing that. And I think having more of those types of individuals building a presence amongst the BAM LGBT plus community is going to help them to actually manage some issues around their mental health, around stigma, around stereotypes and prejudice. But until more of that is happening, there's still going to be a difference in terms of, well, LGBT plus white people are being helped, the BAM LGBT plus white people are not. So I, I think there needs to be more, again, back to training and getting people involved in mental health services from the BAM community. So if um, we like to sort of talk to, ask our guests if they've got any sort of top tips or any advice. Um, if, if there was a, someone listening to this affected by some of the issues that we've talking about, what advice would you give them in this country uh, or maybe anywhere really? But I suppose you've more experience in, in the UK. I, I would say if you're experiencing any issues in regards to your mental health, talk to someone that you trust. Um, it could be a family member. It could be a community leader. It could be a religious leader. It could be anyone, a friend. Just talk to them and let them know how you're feeling. If it starts to get worse, please see your GP. Um, I know I was saying that GPs only see people for a limited amount of time, but if you're feeling that it's becoming persistent and you're really feeling unwell, see your GP and persist with, I just don't want medication. I want talking therapies. There's improving access to psychological therapies, which offers counseling on the NHS. We want to tackle it before it becomes a crisis. Because once it becomes a crisis, that's when it becomes a a little bit out of control. You don't want it to get to that point. So acknowledging how you're feeling and then being able to talk to someone that you trust first. And if you need to have support from a healthcare professional, speak with your GP. 
But there's there's many types of talking therapy, isn't there? Oh, yeah. There's counselling, psychodynamic, mm. CBT, all sorts. I mean, yeah. is it? I mean, are all these types of therapy available to anyone? Because my experience, not quite. Mm. Uh, you know, only maybe some sort of low level CBT. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've I've had a bad experience twice now trying to go to my through through the NHS okay. to try and get. Um, some help first time i was just offered sort of low level cbt it wasn't even a cbt counselor it was mm. just someone filling out forms for five weeks before i could see someone and, and before that i was waiting for about six or seven weeks yeah second time round, um i thought i because i was told you could self-refer so i do it online filled out the forms didn't hear from them at all rang them up didn't get through on the phone, rang them up again, didn't get through on the phone, left a message, mm. they didn't get back to me, you know. So, uh, you know, what I would say is, you know, it's 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 great advice, go, you know, try and get your therapy through IAP, for, through the IAPT thing, but it's not always uh, there available for you, you know, from my experience. No, I completely agree. And that's the unfortunate circumstance for many people that try to access IAPT services through the NHS. Um, I mean, there's also MIND that offers counseling services, there's um, many different third sector psychotherapy agencies. You can go private as well, which is what I do at the moment. Um, I also work with WPF therapy, which offers CBT. If you're working for an organization that has um, an employee assistance program, you can offer counseling and therapy through that. So I think it's just it's building an awareness of what's on offer um, and then accessing what's available. So I say the first protocol is your GP purely because it's good for them to be aware of any mental health concerns that you're experiencing. Because you, whilst you're talking to someone that you trust, you also want a healthcare professional to support you so that you can be at least involved in the NHS. Because I'm not ruling out that medication is not helpful, but it, it can be helpful in addition to seeking counseling and therapy. So, yeah, and also you have to rule out the if there's a, maybe a physical thing exactly, as well, yes, you know, physical health checks and, and things like that. Cause it may be something that's physiological that's going on, which can also impact your mental state. So I, I think that both, both of them are connected. So if you're feeling anxious about some physical problem, if you, if you have some physical problem, it may make you feel anxious. So you may misconstrue that for a mental health concern. So that's, again, why it's good to speak with your GP. Yeah, I mean, I would, let, let me just say, I, I'm not trying to put people off going to their GP to, to get help because my experience is just my own personal experience. I mean, there was someone on the Bain panel who said that she mm. went to IAPT she got seen in two in two yeah, weeks. Yeah, she had a really good experience. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and you know, it's very individualistic. Yeah. So I think personally, I think the fact that it, that it is a lottery as to as to where you are, I think that needs to be addressed. I think it. I think mm. what we need to see is a you know a level playing field throughout the country mm. in terms of that. And that goes back to your point around funding issues with the NHS. Um, and I think that there is almost like a postcode lottery in terms of where you live and the access to services. And, and that's why I think it's good to build, build an awareness of not only NHS services, but multiple mental health services within the area. So I think there needs to be um, much more of access. So like, I don't know if it has to be like internet directories or something that gets the word out that there's not just this IAP service, but there could be mind and it could be third sector services and private mm -hmm. services. Um, but there, there is stuff available. And I think it's just building more awareness around that. That is very true. There are lots of sort of charities. There's lots of, you know, mm -hmm. I went to Waterloo counseling around the corner, which mm -hmm. was, you know, 19 quid a session for an hour's therapy. 
anxiety. I've gone through Anxiety UK, which is mm. like means tested for there's mind, rethink mental illness, loads of places where you can yeah. get some. But you're right, it's a case of uh, you know, we know that because we we we're mental health um fanatics. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say nutters. <laughs> Yeah. But we, but but you know, it's getting the message out there that that people are aware of this. Yeah, I Absolutely. think. Yeah, and actually, stop being scared to actually go and seek it. You know, Having yeah, those barriers that we put up. You know, they have yeah. to come down. Definitely, definitely. Well, I feel like we've covered so much ground here, and we could talk to you for a, for. A, I think we might have to get Anthony in as our 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 resident sort oh, of no. expert, <laughs> especially because we know he's around the corner. He's in Vauxhall, you know, which is great. He's a it, therapist. He's, he's actually he's an actual he's real. He's legit. He's an so actual guys, professional. <laughs> unlike us when we whistle on, this is advice you should take. You should really fully take it. <laughs> Amazing. It's so it's so true. So yeah. So when we do um yeah. When we do some of our sort of future stuff, we're gonna we, we'll we'll stay in touch if you don't mind. No, of course, yeah. And and I can't stress enough that if you're feeling low or anxious or anything that's in between, please talk to someone, anyone that you trust, and just express how you're feeling. Get those emotions out because the more you keep them inside the worse you're going to feel yep. and your body's just going to reject it. And then you're going to have physiological symptoms and it just spirals from there. So talk to someone that you trust. There's nothing wrong with that. And hopefully you'll be able to get the support that you need. And if people want to get direct support from you, is that, I mean, could you, do you want to plug yourself or? or oh don't? yeah, sure. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have my own private psychotherapy practice. Um, my uh, practice is called Anthony Davis therapy. Davis spelt D A V I S. Okay. Uh, website is adavistherapy.com. And I'm also on Instagram as well. So adavis.therapy. And please send me an email at adavis.therapy at gmail.com. Oh God, he's so he's so slick, isn't he? He's better he than us, us, isn't he? <laughs> he's well, better than us. That's not hard. I even <laughs> got the intro wrong. Today. I feel like words have just. Sort of, I can't can't put a sentence together. Sorry, listeners. I mean, I'll be on I'll be on the board. Maybe it's because it's uh, our our third one today. Actually, yeah. We've done good today. It's no, we've done good. good no. Day. But anyway, listen, yeah. we'll let you go. And um, yeah, thank you very much for oh, coming thank down. Thank you for having me. Yeah, mate, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure.